0: Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host, Beth English, and today we're speaking with Talitha LaFloria, Associate Professor of History at Florida Atlantic University, and currently a fellow at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia, Her new book is Chained in Silence, Black Women and Convict Labor in the New South, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Talitha LaFloria, welcome to Working History.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's jump right in to discuss your book, Chained in Silence. Can you talk a little bit about the story that uh, Chained in Silence tells?
1: Chained in Silence, it really tells the story of the lived and laboring experiences of black women incarcerated um, in the New South, particularly in Georgia, um, after the Civil War. Uh, More specifically, this book chronicles the ways in which imprisoned black women's labor um, was used to help construct new industries in the aftermath of the war. As we all know, or many of us know, Georgia was seen as the quote-unquote empire state um, of the New South uh, after emancipation. And it essentially, boasted the most diverse range of industries to emerge um, in the South um, after the war. So because of this very um, expansive range of industries that evolves in Georgia after emancipation, it it begins to precipitate a greater need for laborers. And when they choose laborers and they turn to the carceral state to fuel their labor labor force um, or to create a labor force to help fuel this new South industrial economy, they don't make any exceptions when it comes to women's work. So essentially, women's labor was used indiscriminately along with that of men to Mm -hmm. um, rebuild the war torn South and to fortify new industries, um, you know, through the infamous convict lease system.
0: So can you tell us um, just very briefly uh, what the convict lease system was and, and how it functioned?
1: Okay, so after the Civil War, really all of the southern states at different times and different intervals after the war begin to turn to this system known as convict leasing as a way to help rebuild their, their economic infrastructure. Georgia adopts the convict lease system formally in 1868. And the way that the system worked was that essentially the state allowed private industrialists to rent or bid rather on convict labor and to take these convicts into their possession and to work them um, for as many hours a day as they wanted these private industrialists were given complete control over um, not just their day-to-day work schedules but also their the feeding, of the convicts, um, clothing of the convicts, the housing of them, of uh, these inmates, but also um, their medical care, which, as you can imagine, was was terrible and in some um, instances non-existent. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the entire felony populations in these southern states were parceled out to Southern industrialists, um, and who forced them to work, as I mentioned, say, the Georgia in particular, in a very wide range um, of industries. Um, they hired whipping bosses, which could be equated with, in the Old South context, overseers, mm-hmm. also armed guards. They also would um, hire prison physicians, because there was essentially a medical economy at play here as well.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about the numbers of people that we're talking about, um, when we talk about the the convict uh, lease system in in Georgia, and more specifically, when we're talking about women?
1: So in Georgia, um, over 90% of the convict population was comprised of African-American men. Mm -hmm. Approximately 5% of the population was comprised of, a little over 5, between 5 and 7% was comprised of white men. Approximately 3% of the felony population um, was comprised of African-American women and less than 0.01% of the population was comprised of white women. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the numbers, Believe it or not, over ninety nine percent of the female female prison population was comprised of African American women. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So when you look at the convict lease system in particular, white women are numbering in the single digits. Mm -hmm. Um, But when it comes to chain gang, they're they're numbering in the double digits. Mm -hmm. So there were more white women who were. Um, misdemeanants and were forced to, you know, operate in chain gangs. I'm not sure if they were actually performing road work or whether they were working as cooks or whatever the case within these chain gang camps. But for the convict lease system in particular, I do have very, very clear and concrete numbers in Mm -hmm. terms of how how many um, women, black and white, were um, encased within that uh, system. In the convict lease system, um, in terms of the female, black female felony population, on an average year, there were around 50 to 55 mm-hmm. um, incarcerated black women, mm-hmm. um, if you do the average, mm-hmm. um, in the convict lease system per year. Now, the chain gangs that's a different story, mm-hmm. because these chain gang laborers, obviously misdemean um, convicts uh, were typically sent to the chain gang for terms of anywhere from six months to 12 months. The 12 months was um, the max. Mm -hmm. So you have a greater turnover, which means that you have higher numbers. Mm -hmm. So while during, you know, a given year, you may have an average, again, of 55 um, African-American women incarcerated in the convict lease system during that same year, you may have close to 200 on the chain gang. Right. Um, You know, so... The numbers, there's like nearly 75% more women incarcerated on chain gangs than they are um, in the convict lease system, which was a long term system. Right. So, women, like their male counterparts, um, were used to build railroads. Uh, they worked in brickyards, mining camps. Some of them were forced to perform specialized trades, uh, such as blacksmithing, gristmill operating. Some of them were forced to work as lumberjacks, um, or some of us may want to, you know, refer to them as lumberjills, but I'll I could speak specifically as to why I refer to them as lumberjacks. And much of that is because these women were compulsorily defeminized. Mm -hmm. And I'll speak a little bit more about some of the, um, the issues that arise around, you know, what I call um, the social raping of black women and mm-hmm. this type of violence that's imposed upon them um, as they are compulsorily defeminized to uh, fulfill the economic agenda of these southern industrialists who are capitalizing off of their labor. Mm-hmm. Some of these women, um, as I mentioned, you know, were were forced to um, also build railroads, but many of the chain gang women were also forced to build roads particularly during the late 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, uh, these women's labor was utilized to build roads, to contribute to the Good Roads Movement that we oftentimes associated with male convict labor, but there were over 2000 uh, uh convict women workers, over 99% of whom were black women that helped build roads um, in Georgia after uh, the Civil War during the post-emancipation period. So these women are being utilized in a wide range of industrial type labor, while also forced to fulfill domestic and agricultural duties. Mm-hmm. So they are essentially doing everything, okay, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's not in any particular order. And one of the things that I um, came to conclude in the in the during the process of writing this book is that the interest that slaveholders had in preserving Black women's reproductive health during the period of slavery, that same interest does not exist among Southern industrialists after emancipation. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So this is the point in which, as Dorothy Roberts talks about in her work, um, Killing the Black Body, that Black women lose their procreative work. And when that happens, Then we see um, this process of defeminizing and working these women like men. And the reason why you can work them like men and you can work them in the same trades as men is because there is no interest in preserving their reproductive health. So this is one of those nuances that sort of separates the New South, uh, quote unquote, slavery regime from the old. And this is one of the, the... I think most important interventions that the work makes, among others, is accounting for these nuances and the ways in which this, this New South convict leasing and, and these convict labor regimes that emerge, how in some ways they are worse than slavery for African-American women. So it, this book, uh, in terms of the story that it tells, it also in many ways accounts for not just the work that these women performed and the contribution that they made to the forging of New South modernity, but it also provides a very personal narrative of these women's day-to-day struggles and their desperate attempts to resist um, the, the physical and sexual violence that was visited upon them and the overall exploitation um, that they fared within these uh, convict lease and chain gang camps.
0: And what inspired this work? How did you, um, you know, how did you come to to write this book?
1: This book is as much biographical um, as it is intellectual. My great-grandparents were actually born and raised in Jim Crow, Georgia. Uh, My great-grandmother was born in... 1904. My great-grandfather was born in 1903. And they lived and labored and witnessed much of the oppression that is accounted for in this work. Actually, the prologue to the book is an homage to my great-grandmother and the stories that she used to tell me as a child, but also the dissemblances Okay. And the 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 silences and the meaningful pauses and reticence that she had about telling me, quote unquote, too much about the past. Mm. So mm-hmm. it's really, um, as I say in the book, as much about sort of reading between, you know, my great grandmother, whose name was Leola, uh, Leola Johnson, reading between or trying to interpret her silences while at the same time giving voice to these incarcerated women who are still waiting to be heard. So it, in terms of the whole biographical um, nature of it, my great-grandparents, I should mention, were deeply impoverished sharecroppers mm-hmm. who experienced the effects of occupational exclusion and racism and Jim Crow uh, segregation. You know, they lived and breathed in this climate of terror, mm-hmm. the same climate of terror that the women in this study lived and breathed. And quite frankly, my great-grandmother lived five miles from the Troop County chain gang, mm-hmm. where Robert Burns, who penned the, you know, uh, famous work, I'm a Fugitive from a Georgia Chain Gang, which mm-hmm. led to helped um, expedite the abolition of uh, the chain gang system in Georgia. Uh, so my great-grandmother saw this. She saw You know, people shackled on the sides of the streets and building roads with the chains clanking. And, you know, so she saw this and it it was engraved um, in her mind. So my great grandfather, you know, he managed to eventually relocate my great grandmother and their nine living children to Michigan during World War II. Luckily, he found a job in a foundry in Michigan and was able to uh, bit by bit relocate them over a five year period of time. So by the end of the war, the entire family had been relocated. But, you know, it was really like as much a personal narrative, you know, as it was an intellectual one.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, sort of, you know, going from your family's past to today, can you talk a little bit about how this history that that you talk about in Chained in Silence intersects with the contemporary struggles of African-American women that they're facing today, especially as it pertains to anti-Black state violence and mass incarceration?
1: It is not just difficult, but impossible to deny Um, this book's contemporary implications. First of all, since the 1990s, we've seen nearly an 800 percent spike in the rates of incarceration uh, for black women who are actually now the fastest, black and brown women are now the fastest growing segment of the prison population. Um, So we can't deny um, the ways in which, you know, mass incarceration then and mass incarceration today work. We also can't deny the ways in which state violence or state sanctioned anti-black violence (coughs) operated, um, excuse me, then and now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the brutal murders and beatings of black women by the police is nothing new. The breaking and battering of black female bodies has been in my opinion a mainstay um in American history. You can look at it from the perspective of the carceral state, you can look at it from the perspective of lynching, mm-hmm. you know, in the past and present. Um so I think that the contemporary implications are, you know, they're they're impossible to deny and actually very saddening, you know, to witness. Um, So I don't necessarily believe that we're going in retrograde. I think that much of what's taking place today has been taking place. But thank goodness, now we can actually record it and prove, okay, that Mm -hmm. that it's happening. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this sudden uptick is in many ways, a constant, you know, um, in, in my opinion, this is where we're on, you know, a continuum That has always existed, unfortunately.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Let's delve into um, the book a, a little bit more in terms of sort of how you, uh, how you came to, to this story. Your study is in many ways, um, or I think could be described as very interior in nature. And by that, um, I mean that you, ins- you explore the inner lives of these incarcerated women in Jim Crow, Georgia. And, um, you know, this is quite remarkable, given that the, the historical record is so sparse. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how you got to these women's stories, what the methodological approach was uh, that you used, and then also maybe just um, talk a little bit about um, any individuals that sort of stand out in your mind um, that, that made their way into the book?
1: Okay, terrific. Honestly, I... I elected to use what uh, historian Collie Gross calls an elastic analytical framework. And what I mean by that is that I essentially used everything that I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to talk about some of the types of records that I used, um, I used prison commission reports, principal keepers reports, um, clemency applications, which were really good in terms of adding a little bit of voice, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Um, The book is called Chained in Silence for a number of reasons. Um, These women have been historically and historiographically chained in silence and literally Mm -hmm. um, as Mm -hmm. well. So one of the ways to be able to, you know, account, for a little bit of voice at least, was to read these clemency um, applications. And even though a lot of it was transcribed and sort of third person rendering, we do get a sense of you know, how these women um, felt or explained their circumstances, but also how some of the family members who wrote in on their behalf or the petitioners, you know, who were obviously petitioning for them um, to get out of prison a lot of these women were incarcerated based on you know, circumstantial evidence, and so you get a lot of that, but it also gives us a glimpse into many of the medical struggles um, that these women were faring. These women were, a lot of them were very, very sick. Um, they were dying at the point of clemency. One woman in particular who comes to mind was a woman um, named Ella Gamble, and Ella Gamble was actually arrested and incarcerated for murder, she was accused of putting uh, poison in um, the food, which was consumed by her employer. And Mm. he died from um, what was called then rough on rats. It was Mm. a form of rodenticide. Mm -hmm. So at the time she was actually three months pregnant. Um, She was a newlywed and she had, I believe, two other children. So she was incarcerated for Um, 20 years, okay, she passed through, she began at the um, BG Lockett Brick Camp, then she was sent to the Chattahoochee Brickyard, and she worked as the cook. And um, I guess once, you know, her pregnancy um, ended, then she was forced to, you know, make bricks like the men. Mm -hmm. Then after that, she was passed on to the uh, Bolton Broom Factory, which was actually the first sort of female-centered prison colony that they essentially tried to create because by this time you you there was a, an uptick in, you know, this reform impulse and they wanted to begin to sort of put these women, take them out of the convict lease camps and put them into more gender-exclusive spaces while at the same time still performing, you know, the work of, of men or mm-hmm. industrial Real. work. So when she's Taken to the Bolton Broom Yard, you know, uh, Bolton Broom Factory. She's making brooms. And then by the early 1890s, um, all of the female prisoners in the state of Georgia were relocated to a prison camp known as Camp Herdmont for women. Mm-hmm. So all of these women and, you know, all the female convicts throughout the female felons in particular throughout the state of Georgia were relocated to Camp Herdmont. And... Um, Although, you know, they had their femininity, uh, I guess, given back to them, they were still doing male work. Mm -hmm. So one woman in particular, Eliza Randall was working as a blacksmith. Um, Ella Gamble, who I mentioned, um, who I'll, you know, sort of sum up and tell you what her final dispensation was. She was a farm laborer at the camp. Okay. you had women um, primarily working as um, field hands, uh, one woman, as I mentioned, Eliza Randall working as the blacksmith and mill operator. And you had, obviously, women, um, very few uh, working as cooks, that was typically um, a role prescribed for white women.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so there was this sense of racial privilege that existed, if you can believe it, within this terrible system that Mm -hmm. oppressed everybody. But there was still some sort of, you know, racial hierarchy in place and kind of like an appropriation of the same type of Jim Crow that was being um, solidified outside of these invisible prison walls. Mm -hmm. So you have Ella Gamble, who's working at Camp Herdmont and who in 1899, when all of the female felons, again, are transported once again to um, the Georgia State Prison Farm, which is where, which was the, I guess, final destination for the state's um, female felons, black female felons in particular, um, and some uh inmates later on. Ella Gamble, by the time she arrives there, she's, she's sick. She's dying from cancer of the womb the mm-hmm. bladder, and the rectum. Mm-hmm. By that time, according to census report, Ella Gamble had six children. Mm-hmm. Her husband didn't come to prison with her. Right. Okay. So she had been the victim of multiple sexual assaults, had given birth in captivity, and guess what? Two of those babies were recorded as being dead. Mm-hmm. So at Camp Hermont, I have evidence of babies being drowned. Mm-hmm. And William Maddox, the Lee C., um, you know, telling the guards to do away with these babies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know if those two children who were, you know, um, missing or died were exterminated at Camp Hermont or, or wherever they were exterminated. It could have been in one of the convict, you know, the male-oriented convict lease Camp. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is that her story was not uncommon. You know, many of these women, by the point that they, by the time they get to the state prison farm, they're sick and Mm -hmm. they're dying. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them become sick and are dying. And some of them have already died by the time there is any sort of reformatory, uh, official state sanctioned reformatory contrived for them Mm -hmm. in the form of the Georgia state prison farm. Mm -hmm. So it's a very a very sad and depressing story, but clemency applications helped to get at that, that medical portion of this, of this history. Mm -hmm. Also newspaper articles. Um, I decided to use black newspapers and conservative um, and semi-conservative white newspapers, which oftentimes hyperbolize and pathologize black female criminality. Mm -hmm. But what I found was that it was the conservative newspapers that helped to fill in the gaps and provided the details that were missing in the official record. Oh, so I had to get really creative in terms of using the newspaper articles and then comparing them with the official record and seeing if the facts check out, which oftentimes, believe it or not, they did. Right. And using the more personal, you know, um, or the more specific details that are provided in these newspaper articles to get the full story. Sometimes I actually was able to find newspaper articles where reporters were um, dictating what the women said to them at their point of incarceration. Interesting. So... I really was able to capitalize off of white Southerners fixation with Negro crime, quote unquote. So this was a very creative way um, and a very elastic way of getting at, you know, getting the full story. So, you know, I just had to, in many ways, just trust my gut and and it worked out.
0: Right. And what ended up happening to these women that were were incarcerated within the, the convict lease system? Do they ever get out? uh, Do we know?
1: You know, it's a really great question. Um, As we know, some of them died. Um, Some of them were released at the point of death. Um, Some of them were, uh, you know, not just granted clemency, but some of them were paroled. Um, And then some of these women just outright disappear, many Mm -hmm. of them. Mm Outright disappear from the historical record. So I think that future historians could benefit from maybe combing, I mean, deeply, deeply combing the census records because it's really hard to get at their post incarceration Mm lives. You know, where Mm did they go? Do they return to the counties of of their birth? Are they reunited with loved ones? Are they received by their communities upon, you know, um, returning if that is exactly what happened? You know, Mm -hmm. these are the types of questions that I actually asked in the epilogue um, of the book, you know, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. future studies could definitely benefit from this type of analysis, but it's very difficult to um, account for their uh, post-incarceration lives.
0: Right. And so, taking all of this as a whole, um, what would you say is the biggest intervention that chained in silence makes? Um, you had mentioned, you know, in terms sort of of the of the historiography of the bigger. Picture of you know the convict South. We're often thinking of you know convict laborers as men. Likewise, um, you you had discussed this whole sort of process of defeminization that occurs, um, and how that's really a a nuance in a in a very distinct difference between um, the slave labor South and the um, you know the the post Civil War South and. So what you know what do you think is um you know taking all all of this together what what is the biggest intervention that you see this book making
1: You know I see a few interventions I think that this book helps us first of all to better understand how the inclusion of women um in the historiography literally and figuratively changes the face of the history mm-hmm. I think it also affords us a more nuanced understanding of how similar and dissimilar the antebellum slavery regime was to the postbellum systems of incarceration, which have been oftentimes referred to as, um, quote unquote, slavery by another name. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that this nuanced understanding of the continuity and discontinuity between Old South slavery and New South slavery is a huge intervention because, again, it draws it it brings up this question about how Black women's uh, reproduction factors into the Old South uh, slavery regime, but then is on a, is is a basically undermined Black women's maternity is undermined, and there's an assault on Black women's reproductive bodies in the post-emancipation context. So that brings me to. This discussion of compulsory defeminization is also being a major intervention Mm -hmm. and looking at how there is no no preservation of black women's fecundity or femininity. Okay, Mm -hmm. this whole process of quote unquote social raping helps us to better understand the the forms of violence that did not necessarily involve whips or fists Mm -hmm. but also but involved some you know sort of like psychological violence Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. as we understand rape victims feel powerless they're oftentimes they're they're beaten they're broken they're battered all of these things sort of factor into the raping of an individual well to give you an example of a black woman named Maddie Crawford, who um, in many ways helps to who this book is, you know, sort of framed around, you know, when she was sent to the Chattahoochee Brickyard, she was wearing a dress. The guards say that it took them several beatings, okay, to make her concede to wearing men's pants. Mm. Afterward, she then, in my opinion, welds herself to uh male garb as a site of protection. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. that again, shows some of this sort of everyday resistance or the hidden transcripts of Black female resistance, which again is another intervention of this work, looking beyond overt resistance to also look at what Stephanie Camp um, refers to as everyday resistance. But when she does this, she then becomes a trustee at the camp, and trustee, her trustee status gives her more mobility, and then she's heralded as one of the greatest blacksmiths in the entire city of Milledgeville, and they're sending her out to actually do uh, blacksmith's work um, in the city. Mm, so mm-hmm. it is these kinds of, you know, interventions that are sort of anchored in this bigger, you know, understanding around how conviction as opposed to conception functions as a way to grow bound labor forces while at the same time compulsorily defeminizing black women, uh, while these women are at the same time resisting in very subtle, but also very potent ways, using their work as a way of sort of reifying their femininity, even though they're they're being forced to wear male garb. So it's all of these, these kinds of um, interventions that I think make Chain and Silence um, very special.
0: And, uh, you know, in the, in the bigger picture, what, what's the takeaway? What do you want people to, to gain from the study and to be thinking about and grappling with after reading it?
1: It's simple. You know, I want people to take away the fact that Black convict women's lives matter in the history and historiography on the subject. I want people to be able to appreciate the view of the working, of working class history, excuse me, from the bottom up and that there is a place located below the working class mm-hmm. um, to encourage people to look at these invisible populations of laborers, to look at the modern day carceral state and the prison industrial complex and all of these people you know, who are literally and figuratively chained in silence and are working behind prison walls for no compensation and also whose bodies are being, you know, essentially warehoused as a way to serve this prison industrial complex and all of the economic imperatives of the state and privatization, obviously, you know, of the prison industrial complex and and the collusion with the state in terms of warehousing bodies, but also forcing people to work Behind bars for no compensation or very little wage, pithy sums, and not having their lives or their experiences or the violence or all of the other things that are happening to them, you know that we don't see or we don't hear about. I need. I, I would like to see more of that accounted for. So it's really about what I want people to do, or scholars, or. Just our activists or, or all of the people who are committed to understanding these people's lives and, and doing something to, to help them is to just try to continue to remove links in these chains of silence that exist around the people, you know, who are living today and to also, you know, take the time to look backwards to understand where we are today. I think that there's a lot of uncloaking that needs to, to be done and a lot of unchaining that needs to be done in the, in the history and the historiography.
0: Well, Talitha LaFloria, Chained in Silence is a wonderful book, and you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks very much for talking about it with us on Working History. Thank you. Thank you again to Talitha LaFloria, who is currently a fellow at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. Her book is Chained in Silence, Black Women and Convict Labor in the New South, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.